anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. All right, all right. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Paddling Fiction. I am your host, the voice and soul of so-called fiction, Johnny the Gentile Profita. With me sporadically, sometimes but not always, my better half, Johnny the Jew Mandel. Yo, yo. What's going on, man? Not much. Just a beautiful weekend after uh, snow the previous weekend. We finally got some good weather. We did. We did. You have a nice Cinco de Mayo? Yup. And also a good May the 4th. <laughs> what, what did you do? Anything fun? Uh, yeah. I hung out on the deck, on our roof deck, and uh, had beers with some of my neighbors for uh, about four or five hours. Oh, well, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> hey, man. It was a HOA meeting only. <laughs> oh, God. Speaking of HOAs. Yeah. I'm getting fleeced. Special assessment. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, well, man. Yeah. Brutal. Uh, not a government-related expense. That's uh, private owners coming together. Well, that is kind of true, <laughs> except that my building is designated by the government as a historical monument, uh, and so we do have to hire special contractors who are licensed to do that kind of work, and it costs it. a lot more. And people can reference our licensing episode probably about three months back to yeah. learn a lot more about that. That's right. All right, well, uh, you want to kick it off? Something interesting happened to you uh, in the past week or two, and I'll, I'll go as well. You mean besides my $45,000 special assessment? No way. Yeah. No way. 46, I think, over 10 years. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Wow, that's insane. So that, that's my portion of the, the $4 million special assessment. Oh, my gosh. That's yeah. such a gut punch. Yeah. It's, it's, did, did they know this has been happening for a while? Has this been in the meeting minutes? Well, yes and no. So basically, I mean, we don't have to get into the whole thing, but we had like $2 million worth of old debt from a previous work. And I guess they're having all sorts of issues with the sealing of the building. It wasn't sealed properly. They've been doing all this piecemeal work and they've just discovered more and more issues of all these corners that the previous um, construction crew, I guess the original construction crew and developer cut a bunch of corners. And so now they're, they want to pay off that old debt and fix everything, like basically rip everything out and do it all properly so that this problem will be once and for all fixed instead of doing all this piecemeal stuff. And then they're giving themselves a nice big cushion in there so that we're, you know, the association's not in a bad position going forward because we're kind of in a bind right now. They have, you know, we have like a couple hundred thousand in reserves, but they want to get this job done and they're worried that the job will be done and we won't be able to pay for it kind of thing. So I don't know there's, there's a lot of complaints. There were some big, uh, there's a lot of people, a lot of owners at that last condo association meeting. Well, I can't imagine if you bought like four months ago or three months ago and then you got that slapped in, in front of you. Yeah. Or so I was asking if it was in the minutes. I, they haven't been giving us the minutes. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've been going in and out of the country for like weeks at a time also over the last like four months. So I've been reviewing. The last thing I remember seeing in the minutes was like, they were talking about exercise equipment. Got it. <laughs> and I was like, okay. But, um, interesting. Yeah. It's, it's been a whole ordeal. Um, uh, it's also sucks cause I wanted to sell it last summer. Yeah. Of course. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. So, um, yeah. What about you? I, I uh, I did a sales pitch at, um, a university, Southern New Hampshire University. And it's, it's basically like a big competitor to Phoenix. And this thing's growing like crazy. And 
you know, everyone's talking about college debt. We talked about it on the show two weeks ago. It really is the model of the future, man. I mean, there there is no reason why you need to have sort of like hundreds of universities sort of doing the same thing uh, with all this physical infrastructure when a lot of the stuff can just be digitalized. So it might take a while, but, but it's probably definitely um, a bigger part of the future than it is now. So your sales pitch was what? Well, I was just, I was happy to be selling to this specific university. So our, our software product, but that's just, uh, that's just secondary to, to, to visiting this thing and seeing how fast it's growing. Okay. So some, uh, advancement in the education sector. Yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see how it plays out, but definitely, um, you know, if you can learn online in like two years, what, you know, most people can learn by going to school for four years. You know, is that not a better model? So, I, I cer- think so. certainly not as much fun, but, um, <laughs> you know, we're talking about economic uh, eff- efficacy here. So, yeah. So, first topic up, what's on deck? Yeah. So, are we doing tariffs, Trump tariffs? Trump tariffs plus human rights. Okay. Trump tariffs, human rights, and reparations, right? Yep. And the tariffs and the human rights, I'd say, are, let's, let's uh, intertwine. Okay. Because, uh, yeah, Trump kind of tanked the stock market today. I think it closed way off the lows, though. It might have been down slightly. But at one point, it was down like 500 points on the Dow. Okay. Um, and he was threatening to increase tariffs on China. He came out over the weekend on Sunday and said that he wanted to, he wanted to raise tariffs on $200 billion in Chinese-made goods to 25% from the current 10%. Unless he saw more progress toward a deal, he also threatened to extend the tariffs to include another $325 billion in Chinese imports. Now, obviously the market didn't like that. One thing that's been pretty unbelievable to watch as far as the, the stock market's concerned is how much they've been able to squeeze out of this potential China trade deal. Yeah. It just seems like every couple of weeks... They'll be like, oh, Trump's getting closer to a deal, and the market will rally. And then, like, a week later, they'll be like, yeah, we're getting even closer on the deal now. And there'll be another, like, 200-point rally. And it's just like they've been doing this for years. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny. This is definitely a bipartisan issue. I mean, you know, I saw Chuck Schumer tweeting, you know, keep it going. Keep it going on this. Yeah, stick it to China. Stick it to China. You know, this goes back to our debt argument, which is, you didn't have just an enormous national debt. You wouldn't have the debt being bought by China, which keeps their currency low. So, I mean, that's definitely a huge part of the issue is that <clears throat> China is able to invest in our currency via our debt and that lowers their currency. So, I mean, that, that's that's really the central issue here. And what you're trying to do with these tariffs is you're, you're right-sizing that trade-off, that that debt being sold and that um, currency being lowered. So it's kind of like an inefficient, weird circle that's happening. Well, here's one of the problems with tariffs, right? And there, there are several. But one thing for sure is that these tariffs will always hurt the very people that the government, the very people that Trump proposes that it will help, which is the poorest among us, the American consumers in general. America is not winning by enforcing a 25% tariff on Chinese goods because it's always going to fall. The ultimate cost is always going to fall on the American consumer. And who, you know, who's buying all these cheap Chinese goods? It's you know, the middle class, the poorest, the, the poorest people in the country. And all this is going to do is increase the, the price of those goods and services for them. Yes, you might see some of those costs, you know, dispersed across the the production chain, but the bulk of it is going to fall on at the point of sale. And I, by the way, I would say too, I, yes, definitely falling on the consumer. I think the bigger thing is you're picking winners and losers, and you're creating distortions in the market that you don't want, right? Absolutely. So you're saying, you know what, um, uh, domestic manufacturers, you're going to win. But domestic farmers, you're going to lose, right? And you're creating all sorts of like distortions and, and basically, you know, you're falling victim to the law of unintended consequences by, you know, creating bubbles in some areas of the market and then, you know, 
kind of juicing other areas. So yeah. it's weird. Absolutely. Depressing that's, others. That's, that's a great point. And the, yeah. and the government loves to do this. They love to break the economy up into different sectors and focus on their, their special pet project groups for Trump. You know, it's domestic manufacturing and coal miners and stuff like that. Right. The Democrats are big on the unions, yeah. uh, teachers unions, you know, and then they like to take the tax code and start trying trying to incentivize certain behaviors that they think are good, that they think are beneficial and micromanage the economy that way. It's all it's always going to be a disaster. This this sort of authoritarian micromanaging of the economy will always will all we will always be worse off. The best thing for the economy is to have Millions of individuals making their own decisions for what's in their best interest. And I know that a lot of people can get really confused when it comes to tariff and international trade and stuff and the economics behind it. But if you, if you understand nothing, just understand that a tariff is a tax and the tax is going to fall on the person buying those goods. It will get passed along to the consumer. This is a horrible idea. A, a horrible idea. Trump's trying trying to flex and be all tough for the Chinese. He does this a lot. He'll he'll you know he'll talk real tough, rally up his base. We're gonna win. We're gonna stick it to China, and then he and then he sort of backs off of it later on down the line. And that's when you start start seeing the the market rally. It's like oh well, he's not actually doing the twenty five percent tear. So this might just be his way of trying to goose the stock market a little bit. But um, he might have pushed it too far because it it's not looking good. It's not looking good from a market standpoint. The markets are, are getting a little little jittery over this, and it's starting to look like um, th- this deal that he's been he's been pushing for all these years could fall apart. Right. And by the way, Trump does not want a deal, okay? Because as far as the the stock market, he wants the stock market to be high, right? That's his whole thing. That's his, it was a big fat ugly bubble when he was a candidate, but as soon as he took over, now it's the greatest economy the world's ever seen the greatest stock market the world has ever seen. We're winning again. And all of these rallies have been sustained by this potential deal that's off on the horizon between the United States and China, this trade deal. Every time he needs to get a couple hundred point rally, he starts pushing China trade deal stories and the market is buying into it. But it's going to be a buy the rumor, sell the fact kind of scenario. So the last thing he wants is a deal to actually be struck. All right, he wants to keep talking about a deal, getting all getting the rally out of the the fact that there's going to be this tremendous deal. But he never wants that deal to actually get signed and put into place because then it's already baked into the cake as far as the market's concerned and you'll probably see a sell-off as soon as that deal is actually signed and then and that's when we find out, you know, like Nancy Pelosi says, you have to pass the bill before you find out what's in it. And it's it's going to be a it's going to be a terrible terrible deal. Not none of this has to do with free trade. There's nothing free about imposing uh, tariffs uh, on international trade. There's nothing free when when governments get involved with with trade between countries. You know, I could write in my own free trade legislation, and it fits on a fucking three by five index card. You know what it says? It says free trade. That's it. Trade will be free unencumbered by government that's the bill that would be truly free trade but this this is one of those things where they like to call it the opposite of what it actually is they pass legislation that's the exact opposite of free trade that imposes all sorts of burdensome rules and regulations and restrictions on the people that want to want to do it and then they call it free trade and all this is going to end up doing is hurting the u.s economy in the long run you know this protectionism is not going to work we will have less factory jobs in the long run I mean, here's the truth. Even if you brought back factories, I've been thinking a lot about this because I am for good blue collar jobs. But the problem is, even if you bring back the manufacturing, dude, those factories, they're they're no longer driven by humans. Like they are entirely robotic. And so even if these these tariffs succeeded in bringing back factory jobs here, it's not going to be workers manning most of that that work. It's going to be robots. And, you know, that... That's sort of the, that's the law of unintended consequences. It's like, okay, well, you can increase the cost of the goods, right? And you're also not really solving the problem. So if anything, you, you might be making a bad problem worse. It'll definitely be more and more automated as time goes on. 
And, you know, if we don't have the, the competitive advantage in that area, it doesn't make sense for us to, to waste resources doing something that another country can do cheaper or more efficiently. Right. Yeah. So, so anyway, th- this is tied in. I, I guess the big thing here is, okay, there's a trade dealing being negotiated. Fine. It, it kind of came out in various news sources that, that China is, is uh, interning like a million of this eth- ethnic minority, Muslim minority, uh, the Uyghurs. And so I guess my question to you, I think I know the answer. What's sort of the free market stance on, you know, dealing with a country that, that maybe represses people or, or um, doesn't, you know, allow yeah. civil rights? It's sort of the, the same type of solution we would have to something going on within our society, which is like ostracizing them. Yeah. You were trying to tie it into the whole trade thing. Yeah, maybe we, we shouldn't be trading with um, human rights offenders, you know. And, and if if they wanna if they wanna imprison, you know, a, a minority of their population, I want them to suffer consequences for that. But I I don't want innocent people to die as a result of it. You know, I want them to suffer consequences in the least violent way possible, and with the least amount of innocent civilians dying because that's that's just going to make matters worse right you're you're kind of cutting off your nose to spite your face at that point because what's the typical u.s response to this sort of thing it's like well we'll impose we'll impose sanctions you know or we'll we'll, we'll put up a blockade so you can't you can't bring in food to, to feed your your population or or we'll come or we'll we'll just start bombing you you know, we'll use it as a pretense to invade your country and topple, uh, topple your oppressive dictator and install one of our, one of our puppet regimes, you know, and we've destroyed entire countries doing that. We've, the, the result of our intervent, our foreign intervention has been far worse than like a million, a million people have been put in being put in internment camps as bad as that is. I mean, look at what we've done to the Middle East. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to like, um, I don't want to make light of the fact that, that people are being put into internment camps because that's horrible. But our, our, the U.S.'s typical response to this sort of thing is even worse. The, the best way to make them suffer without going over there and killing a bunch of people would be to, yeah, make them suffer it in the marketplace. Yeah, I think the, the key is the average American won't say, I'm not going to buy a Chinese product. Um, because of this thing. So I think two things you mentioned is education and awareness, right? Right. Well, I hadn't even heard this story. Right. Um, apparently it came out on Friday. The, U- the United States started accusing them of, of putting Muslims in concentration camps, basically. But this is not being widely reported. Well, yeah, because, you know, you got to decide whether or not Joe Biden's too old to run or not. Like, Yeah, uh, all the, the, the Russia collusion stuff and obstruction and, you know, Trump, the orange man is bad. So, you, you know, the sad thing, though, is, too, is how much awareness and education would have to happen before people said, you know what, I'm not going to buy a Chinese made product because, you know, people bought Chinese made products, even though uh, it might have been less, uh, it might have been more expensive to buy U.S. made products. But again, cheaper prices won out. And I wonder in this case, like people say, yeah, you know, a million people. I mean, I, I don't know how much education awareness would have to take place. How could you make the cost of the product more expensive to account for the human rights violation? Because at the end of the day, it's more of a moral uh, decision you have to make rather than an economic one. Right. Yeah. You would probably have to suffer financially in order to take a moral stand. Right. Which people do. I mean, yeah. in, in your day-to-day life, you might say, you know what? I'm not going to eat it at a Starbucks. I'd rather go to the local coffee shop just because I, I like how they pay their workers more. Right. Right. So it doesn't happen in mass. It, it does happen. You know, a lot of Jews coming out of world war two would like vowed never to buy like a German car. A lot of Americans too. A lot I mean, of Americans I remember too, my yeah. grandpa was like, I'm not buying that fucking crap car. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, I mean, you know, it does happen. I wouldn't say the thing is, China and the U.S. are so intertwined in trade. It's it's so hard, man. It's like yeah. you'd, you'd have to go live in a forest somewhere. Well, I think the good the good news is with all the the technology we have, and as you know, 
to the extent that the internet is still free and open, it's it's easy to garner a lot of support for your issue if there's like an internet campaign for it. Right. You know, if there was like if there was some sort of thing like that that they do after there's like a mass shooting or something like that where everyone's like changing their Facebook picture. I mean, it's stupid stuff for that, but yeah. um it gets it gets the message out to a, a large number of people very quickly. Yeah. But the thing is, in order for people to know that there's an issue, this our corrupt mainstream media has to actually report on it. And they're not doing that. They're derelict in their duties constantly. They're so obsessed with Trump. I mean, you would think this would be an easy story for them. Hey, Trump is trying to, to negotiate with human rights violators through throwing people in cages because of, the, because of their religion. I mean, this should be something that they're reporting on. But since it's not Trump actually doing it, they can't they can't seem to see see the story there. It's got to be something that he's directly doing. And they'll, they'll get on him for the, the, the most petty things imaginable, something that he tweeted. Well, look at what these people are actually doing. How about reporting on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I saw I saw easily five or six stories today about Trump's threats on on tariffs. Yeah. And, and no mention of. Uh, of China interning a bunch of Muslim people. Do we know why? Do we know why they were doing it? Um, I don't want to speculate too much, but I think like their society like somewhat runs a little bit on censorship and. And this is this is true, right? This isn't like some John Bolton, Mike Pompeo bullshit lie that they're just perpetuating. I think, I think to... this is true. Again, they might be using it for leverage yeah. in, in the trade deal, but yeah, I mean. I think the key for U.S. citizens, though, is to always sort of stand up for civil rights in your own country. Like, you never want to get to potentially this point. So it did happen in our country during World War II. Yeah, we did it to the Japanese. In turn, Japanese folks. So, Yeah, a lot of people tend to have uh, amnesia when it comes to that and FDR. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, dude, I think we ran, ran, like, medical experiments on Puerto Rico and, like, <laughs> The 60s and 70s, too. Yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff. Anyway, the internment stuff at, uh, for the Japanese kind of um, is a nice segue to our second issue. So the Japanese uh, were paid reparations. Oh, yeah, the reparations. For for uh, World War II internment. Right. Which probably was pretty easily decipherable. You know, it's, it's funny. I said, like, let's save the reparation talk for the show because you brought up something kind of interesting, which is like, yeah, it's hard to determine whose family was affected by that, right? It, well, the lo- the more time goes by, the harder it is. Yeah. But again, I don't know if that's on the victims to have to like, yes, well, that might be true, but I don't know if that's a good reason not to pay out victims. Like, oh, it's hard to figure it out. Therefore, like, we're not going to pay you anything. Right. Because the thing is, the person that paying out will always say, will always say, give us more and more proof. And the victim will always say, well... I shouldn't have to give, you know, I shouldn't have to, shouldn't have to be that much proof because it's so long ago. So. Right. But these aren't the victims. The, the, the people that, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris are talking about paying reparations to aren't the victims of slavery. They're the, the, they're the descendants of slaves. So, I mean, right there is one issue. The idea of paying reparations now to descendants of slavery is absolutely ridiculous. Okay. I wouldn't be against reparations per se, like in the case of the Japanese internment camps or uh, the Jews after the Holocaust. I mean, that you actually have the people who suffered the actual injustices right. and the people who caused the injustices. So right. you have both, act, both participants in the situation. Right. And now we just like, are, who, who's responsible for what somebody did 150 years ago? The U.S. government was responsible Right. And yeah, the, the people who were in the U.S. government 150, 200 years ago, but not the not the ones that are there now. You know, the, the one hard part about like, I agree on reparations that are immediate are easier to pay out. But if you go back to after slavery and even like 50, you know, 40, 50 years after. There was no support. There was no practical way to pay reparations because it was such a fact of life back then. So it's just hard to say like, well, um, you know, the Holocaust or the Japanese internment that happened right away. 
Well, the reason it didn't happen right away was because it was such a normal fact of life back then. And only now through our lens, we're like, we're like that was really horrible, horrible enough that reparations should have been paid. No, I, I, I totally disagree. I mean, obviously there was a, a large portion of the population that, that thought slavery was immoral because we fought a war over it. Okay. And then we, we didn't have it in the North near, nearly to the extent that we did in the South. And you know, it's not about what's, it's not about being, well, it's, it's, it's just too difficult to pay it out. It's, it's about what's just, and I don't see how you can make the argument that it's just that people who had nothing to do with slavery hundreds of years later now have to pay for the, the sins of their forefathers and not even to the, not even to the victims, to the, to the descendants of victims. You know what I mean? But the idea that society didn't know slavery was immoral after we abolished slavery, I don't know, man. I, I can't get on board with that. There, there was obviously a large portion of the population that thought, it was, that thought it was wrong. And I'm sure right after the war, it would have been a tough sell politically. Maybe there, wouldn't, maybe there wasn't an immediate um, political will to do it. Because, I mean, you just asked a bunch of people. Well, you didn't even ask them. So we just fought a bloody war. Hundreds of thousands of people died. And, and now you're asking them to reach into their pocket and, and, and pay reparations to, to uh, a, a percentage of the population that was wronged. And some of those people didn't have slaves. Some of them, just, uh, some of them were enslaved by the government to fight in the war. I mean, what conscription is slavery? So, what are we gonna pay? are we gonna pay reparations to everybody that was conscribed to fight in that war too? I mean, at the, that conscription is the worst form of slavery. You're not picking cotton in the field. You're getting your fucking legs blown off by cannonballs in the fields. You know, you're standing there as cannon fodder. Obviously, the best thing to do would have been to, as part of the South surrendering you force those slave owners to pay the reparations at that time or shortly thereafter while, while the people that were enslaved were still alive, you know, and the people who were enslaving them were still alive. And I get that we're long past that point and you, you can't really, and you can't really go back and fix it. I, I don't see how you can ask people in the North who fought, who fought against slavery and died lost limbs, lost loved ones, fathers, brothers, how you can ask them to pay reparations to people who are wronged when they themselves were enslaved. You know, pe people don't like to think of conscription as enslavement, but, I mean, that's what it is. It's the worst form of slavery. But like everything, when the government does it, for some reason, we view it in this special under these special circumstances, these special terms where slavery doesn't apply, it's conscription, you know? The state always gets a pass. So, so let's, let's step back for a second. You know, like, you, you like my, I like my thought experiments. If you, if you could reasonably say this slave owner and sort of this, this family was responsible and owned slaves, like if you could sort of historically say, okay, these are the families that were slaves and these were the families that employed the slaves. Hmm. Okay. Let's say you could see that with like pretty good transparency. Then would you be in favor of reparations? It, like, is that the thing that you don't like about it? That it's like too hard yes. to piece that. Together? You have to be able to prove like a, a direct lineage. You can't just have like right. the entire country paying every, every black person for slavery. So if you could piece it together, do you have a problem saying to someone like, let's say a South Carolina guy, Hey, your grandfather, um, owned slave, or, sorry, your great grandfather owned slaves and he owns these people a hundred thousand dollars of back pay. And because of that, that debt is now on you. Do you have, do you have an issue with that? No, not, wow. if, not if you can prove it. It's that's, I'm like shocked actually. Why? Because you, I think a lot of people don't like the idea of reparations because they're like, oh, it's just a handout. But what you're saying is you don't mind the transfer of money. You mind the unscientific part of it, like that you can't identify who should pay and who shouldn't pay. Yeah, you. I mean, it, it, you have to be able to show that 
that you were wronged in the past. Right. And that this specific person wronged you and that they that restitution needs to be paid. And and the the proposals that are coming out of from like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and all these like uh, Democratic um, presidential candidates, it I mean, first of all, they don't really give you any details. They just say, oh, we should pay reparations. Well, right. how's that going to work exactly? Right. Is it just based like everybody who's black gets uh, gets reparations? Right. Or do you have to prove that you were once enslaved? Does because uh, tons of black people came came here. At post slavery. Right. Or what if you're like LeBron James, does he get reparations from some like poor schmo in Alabama who has no money? Well, let me ask you this. Again, because we're talking about uh the evidence is hard to determine, but if you could determine evidence, if you're the grandson of, you know, let's say you're the grandson of or the great-grandchild of slave owners, should you be responsible for your ancestors? debt like how would that right. work and I, I think i mean the answer i think is no which is why they're kind of proposing that the government step in and do it but let me ask you should you be responsible for your ancestors debt i guess if 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 you have inheritance maybe right so i mean if yeah i i don't think in general people are responsible for the sins of their fathers or their grandfathers or their great-grandfathers but like if my if my great-grandfather stole you know, a thousand dollars from your great grandfather. And then he gave me like $500 of that. That $500 is not my $500 and it wasn't his to give away. It was something that he stole. So this is, so this is like a math, this is like a massive math problem. Basically a, a, it's so infinite. It's probably impossible to solve at least without, there is just, I mean, it's so unworkable at this point. Right. And I, I definitely wouldn't trust the government to, to work it out. I think it's sort of like saying like, well, like it's, it's logically impossible to come up to figure out who's owed what, who's paid what. So we're just going to create a program that gets us like 30% of the way there. And there's gonna be a lot of wrong, you know, wrong payments and, and incorrect things, but at least it's it's uh, maybe like a, a closing of the of the book. And I, look, dude, I I know you hate this because it's government involved in doing it, but you definitely have a claim. I mean, there are definitely families with a claim that said, you know what, my great great grandfather or my great grandparents were slaves; they should have been paid back. I mean, do they though? Do they have a legitimate claim? I mean, if you, I I could make the argument that the descendants of slaves benefited from their ancestors being enslaved because they got to be born in America. You know what I mean? Instead of like, obviously what their ancestors went through is horribly immoral and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But I mean, as a result of them being enslaved, the, their, their offspring got to, got to be citizens of the greatest country in the world. Some would argue. You know, it, it's they're far better off. Even even the poorest people in America are far better off than than the average person in Africa. Right. Like sub-Saharan, wherever they would have been in Africa, had they not been brought over in the in the United States slave trade. There's also a chance they would have just been slaves in Africa. It's not like we like we went over to Africa and just started picking people up and been like, you're my slave now. No, no, they were they were slaves in Africa, and they were sold to the United to to people in the United States. So, I could make a pretty strong argument that they're in a much better situation, and that they actually, instead of being hurt by their ancestors being enslaved, they were actually better off. Yeah. So, is there any merit to that argument? Well, here's the thing: I think you're making a sociological argument, and I don't really agree or disagree. I mean, on on the face of it. I'd have to like think about it a lot more, but I think you're making a sociological argument. And I think people that want reparations or I would make the economic argument of, Hey, I don't know whether it was good or bad. Right. And the eventual, I just know I did labor that I was not paid for. Therefore I have a claim to some sort of back pay. Right. So the question is, you know, are we making this case on the economic merits and arguing on the economic merits or, or making it on the social? So I do think there's a sociological debate and there's, I'm sure there's a lot of studies done around the sociological, but you know, I think to me, the core economic question is 
I worked the field for 20 years and wasn't paid for it. Right, but those aren't the people that are asking for reparations because they're long gone. Now it's three, four generations later. It's their estate, though. I mean, they're basically saying, my grandfather worked for 20 years. He wasn't paid for that. Right. Him and his estate has have a claim to that. Just like, for instance, I mean, this happens all the time. My grandfather was a music artist, and his music was used from a licensing perspective. He was never paid for that. Therefore, you owe him and his estate, you know, that that money because he no longer exists. It's his estate. So even if my dad doesn't, let's say my dad was a famous artist and he didn't leave me a dollar and he didn't set up a will. Right. But then I go back and I say, actually, my dad, you know, his art was used by this corporation because I'm his descendant. I have a claim to that, to that licensing fee or whatever okay. the money. I'm yeah, on. I see what you're saying from slavery. Now, what I will say to your argument is. People today, if they do make a sociological argument for it, well, this held us back and, you know, that's that's why we're entitled to damages, then if they're making that based on a sociological claim, then I think you have to start having a wider sociological debate. And I think probably a lot of people are claiming that from a sociological perspective, which is, well, like we've never gotten it right for descendants of slaves, so this is our chance to get it right. Versus what I think is a stronger like economic argument, which kind of you brought up. The economic argument's tough too, because again, all the record keeping and descendants gets messy. And you know, like you said, when you have like kind of a government bureaucracy handing on it, yeah, but, you know they, they're going to fumble it. Yeah. So yeah. So I guess just to sort of sum it up, I don't think you can make that sort of sociological argument we were talking about and just have this blanketed claim of damages that everybody in the country owes everybody else a certain amount of money for past uh, for the past sins of the country. I, I, I don't think there's any merit to that, and I think that's a losing political position as well. But I think we both, we both might agree that if you think you have a, a claim economically, it has to be a specific claim that you can prove your family is owed something from another specific family. Like you have to go specifically to the the party that wronged you and you have to be able to prove that their ancestors stole property from you or deprived your ancestors of, of their rightful property. And then in that case, the descendants of those criminals would owe restitution. And that is uh, that position is 100% consistent with libertarian property rights. Uh, I know Murray Rothbard's talked about this. So has um, Walter Block. He's done some good work on reparations. But the idea that you'd have this um, federal government just make this blanket ruling depriving, depriving millions of people of their property in order to right some wrong that they may or may not have been involved in Morally, I, I don't think that's right morally. And not like this has ever stopped them before, but just demanding money from one portion of the population for the specific benefit of another portion of the population violates the general welfare clause of the Constitution. So it would be technically unconstitutional as well. Not like the federal government gives a shit, but I thought I'd throw that in there. Right. But the bottom line is, if somebody has a claim, they should make that claim. Do yeah. it now. You don't you don't have to get the government involved in this. You can go to court. There should be there should be like an avenue for you to make your your claim for reparations. The idea of having the, this big bumbling bureaucracy get involved, start a program, start a an agency, start fucking I mean they're going to there's just no workable way of figuring figuring this all out on like a massive scale. And think right. of how much fraud would be involved. And then some people are going to, I mean, you, you're saying that like, yeah, well, some people that that shouldn't be paying would be paying. Well, then it's like now they're being wronged. Right. And you're wronging somebody else to try to fix a, fix a problem. It, it's kind of interesting because you're right. It is a, a big mess. There probably is like, there are probably our families though with like very well documented. Yes. My great, great grandparent or whatever were slaves on this plantation. Like there probably is very good documentation with some families, but you're right. As a whole, it kind of breaks down. So, so what is the free market way? I mean, uh, that's, that's really the question is, is if I'm really well documented and I know that like 
this family is descendants of this slave owner. Do I go sue that family? It's kind of interesting. To your point yeah. about the thousand dollars, like that's a great example. Yeah, I it, it should be on like an individual case by case basis. Yeah. I mean, at, at this point, like we have to work within the court system that we have. Yeah, uh, which but here's the question: the... Why isn't it more common? Isn't that funny? I, I mean, maybe it's not as easy to, to prove that lineage as you would think. True. I don't know. My thing is, it's probably about who is liable at this point. Yeah, is probably harder to determine than. And the the I mean, just the cost of the 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 lawsuit alone is probably more than you would actually get in right. reparations. Right. Um. But we could also just do this voluntarily. There was actually this was a couple of weeks ago. I I want I think it was Georgetown. Did you hear about this? No. They um so Georgetown had a bunch of slaves I guess yeah that they, right that they sold a lot of southern okay a lot of southern universities had slaves yeah I'm sure there was plenty of sale, buying and selling like so in 1838 Georgetown University sold 272 enslaved people to pay off a debt okay over the last several years there's been a reckoning on campus as as the school tries to wrestle with its ties to slavery. And so what they ended up doing was, so they've come up with this idea to charge all the students of Georgetown a reparation fee of $27.20 a semester. The students of Georgetown overwhelmingly voted to take on this fee, this, yeah. sem this semi-annual fee yeah. for, for what Georgetown did to slaves. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is unbelievable the amount of just white guilt in this situation. Like, the Georgetown enslaved people, and so now they're going to charge the students to pay reparations? I mean, in my mind, it's absolutely ridiculous, but it just goes to show you that there, there are people that are willing to pay these reparations. Do it voluntarily. Make it a GoFundMe campaign. Every government program should basically be a GoFundMe campaign at this point. And this, this situation right here, as ridiculous as it is, only proves that this problem could be solved voluntarily without government. So $27, like, yeah, sure. Like, it's a good cause. Like, I'll, I'll pay for it. it. It is like at the checkout when they're like, do you want to, like, do you want to donate to, like, whatever cause? Like, sure, right? At, like, the grocery store checkout. But yeah, sure. Checkout counter. Do that. Have your business offer a reparations donation at the point of sale. I'm fine with that. Yeah, we're coming up with all kinds of, of free market solutions to the, the problem of reparations. And we've just been at this for like 20 minutes. I'm fine with people capitalizing on white guilt as long as it's voluntary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think white person guilt, just like collective national guilt. I mean, I'm sure there are Asian people that feel guilty about it too. But why? Should they feel guilty about, about it? You're about ha, have I oppressed anybody? Let me ask you a question. Do you feel guilty about the Chinese internment of the million Muslims? No. I feel a little guilty. Why? I support I support the trade with China. I buy products from China. Like I you know I, I, I feel bad. I feel bad like humanity allows it to happen. Like there's you, probably a lot of people that feel it's guilty. Also it, yeah. I mean it's it's not the Chinese company that's in that's interning these people. I'm just it's saying the like government. I'm just saying like levels of guilt. It's sort of like, do people feel guilty about the Holocaust? Yeah. Do they do they like feel very guilty? Like, oh my god, I personally caused it. That's how guilty I feel. No. I I didn't enslave anybody. Right. My grandparents didn't enslave anybody. They weren't here. Right. I don't feel any guilt about this. Like I, I was not involved. But you feel bad about it. You feel bad about slavery. I feel bad. Bad that, yeah, that anybody was ever enslaved. Right. Absolutely. But I don't feel guilty. So anyway, let's move on. That's enough of that. I've probably said enough to get us kicked off of all the major platforms already. <laughs> Government agency to cut. Yeah, our cut of the week. Um, this isn't actually an agency. This is a policy. Okay. Right? Because we want to rid the world, or at least the United States and its territories of the federal minimum wage. Yeah. You know, the exact opposite of what every democratic candidate is um, clamoring for, which they want to raise it so, to $15 an hour. So I have an article here, actually. Okay. Very interesting. Okay. 
New York Times, the federal rage rose to seven twenty five an hour ten years ago. It hasn't budged since. Okay, well, so wait, are we getting rid of just the federal minimum wage or all minimum wages, even at the state level? Let's talk about federal. Okay. Well, my, my principles will, will carry over into the states as well. Okay, so let's hear it. Why, why do you want to get rid of federal, and, and why do you think the politicians campaigning on higher federal is misguided? Okay, so the, the minimum wage is one of the dumbest economic policies of all time. And unfortunately, the dumbest economic policies also make the greatest political policies. Okay. So, uh, great politics is always horrible economics and okay. vice versa. What, what a minimum wage is, is saying is it's illegal for you to work if your productivity doesn't meet a certain threshold. Okay. That's, all, that's all it's saying. It's pricing cheap labor out of the market. So if you're only, if you're only worth you know, $6 and 50 cents an hour and the federal minimum wage is seven twenty-five or whatever it is. It's illegal for you to work. Okay. That's literally the result of the law. I mean, what if you, what if you said, you know what? That means like, there's like, let's say half a million Walmart workers will all bump up to 15. They now have more money to spend and they're creating jobs because of it. So it's almost like a government, like you're juicing kind of in a Keynesian way, the economy by giving, more more money to workers who then spend it and create more jobs that way. Right, but Walmart's going to have to either um, cut workers, cut workers, or raise prices. I mean, they're not or, spe- or have less money to shareholders, or have less money to shareholders. And the other thing that's happening when you're you're basically forcing employees to overpay for labor. So. If the employee, if the employer is overpaying for labor, that means he has he now has less money to put back into the business and grow his, his business to a point where he could expand. So you're preventing him from expanding and in in the future creating more job opportunities for more people. But I mean, if you want to create more jobs, don't make employers overpay for for the price of labor cuz that's all a wage is all all the wage a wage is nothing more than the price of labor and what happens when you i mean this is simple these are simple laws of economics supply and demand when you increase the price of something you decrease the demand for it okay and these these are laws of economics you can't deny these laws any more than you can deny the law of gravity okay so as things get more expensive, the demand for them goes down. And as things get less expensive, the demand for them goes up. It's pretty straightforward. This is economics 101, all right? So if a wage is just the price of labor and you're artificially increasing the price of labor, you're going to reduce the demand for that labor. It's as simple as that. And if the economics of this were sound and it was a good idea to force employers to overpay for labor, wouldn't it be equally as good to make them overpay for everything else that they have to have to buy to run their business? I mean, why why would they shop around at all to find the supplier with the lowest prices? Just force them to pay more, right? Because I mean, obviously that's gonna that's gonna give their supplier more money, so that they can they can go out and spend it, right? I mean, when you think about it that way. Uh, the fallacies of the minimum wage really come to light. You're benefiting one one business or one sector of the economy at the expense of the other. And like I said, this is the, the minimum wage favors skilled workers over unskilled workers. Unskilled workers are the ones that need the opportunity to enter the labor force. And the only way that they can compete with skilled workers is to work for a lower wage. That's the way they get their foot in the door. That's how they get their start. But one of the most destructive things that the minimum wage does, it, it eliminates entry-level positions. When I was growing up, I worked in a paint store. All throughout high school, I started out as a stock boy. I would unload the trucks. I would stock the shelves with paint and brushes. I would take the paint off the truck and bring it into the back and stack it up and unload it. I had no skills. I, I, I could do that. It was pretty easy to train me. You know, it's like that paint goes there. This paint goes there. You put the price. You look up the price of that product and you put the price on the, on the paintbrush, whatever. 
right? I started out there. I think I don't know what the minimum wage was. I was making it. It was like five seventy-five an hour or something like that. But you know, once I proved that I was competent in doing that, and I showed up on time, and I I had a good work ethic, and I was personable. I could get along with everybody. The boss pulls me aside and he says, "Hey, I want to show you how to tint paint." Okay. So then I learned how to mix paint colors, all right? And then uh, then I could help customers, okay? And then eventually it got to the point where I got good at that, and he they would show me how to match colors. So now I could help, I could, I could specialize, you know, certain customers would come in, and I could, they, they could bring in, you know, their light, uh, the, the switch plate to the, to the light switch in their room and they could say, Hey, you know, um, I need a gallon of this color. Can you match it for me? And I could say, yes, give me half hour, 40 minutes, whatever. And I'll, I'll have an exact match for you so that you could, you could touch up that wall and nobody will notice. All right. So I learned more valuable skills over time and I could command a higher wage. By the time I was done with high school, I was making, I think something like, eight or nine dollars an hour and then when I got to college well I I went the first thing I did was I I drove around until I found one of the local paint stores and I went in and I said hey uh, I'm looking for work are you guys hiring and yeah they said yeah do you have any experience I said as a matter of fact I I worked in a, a paint store in Chicago for the last four years I I know I know your product. I know Benjamin Moore paint. I know Morallo paint. I know Pittsburgh paint. I know Sherwin-Williams paint. I can match colors. I can do this. I can do that. And so, you know, they checked my references. The guy called me back within like 20 minutes, and he was ready to offer me a job at $13 an hour because I could literally do just about everything in the paint store. And, and you also pick up skills with, with painting, with stain. You, you learn how like you you learn all kinds of um, valuable knowledge about like what what sort of paint do I use on aluminum siding or what do I need to do to fix this wall I have raw concrete how do I how do I seal it that sort of stuff what do I use on my garage floor there's there's a million different things that you learn and you can take those skills and ex- and not only command higher wages but you can enter into other fields I could have started my own paint company if I wanted to. But I would have never been able to, the, the, my point is, if I hadn't started out at 575, unloading those trucks, I would have never been able to go into that paint store four years later with a, a set of skills that could command a wage over twice that. And if there, if the federal minimum wage was eight, $8 an hour, they, maybe unloading trucks and stocking shelves isn't worth that, the, the isn't worth it to the paint store to pay me that much. Okay. Maybe at $8 an hour, you already have to know how to mix paint, match colors, give advice to customers and unload the trucks because that that's what the minimum wage does. You know, we all have to start somewhere. And when they talk about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, or everyone should be making a living wage. What that means is there's no more entry level jobs. All right, so you can you can be employed at the minimum wage and you can work your way up the ladder or you could be unemployed at $15 an hour and then you have to jump into this this whole this whole racket, this whole college racket where you take on th- uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans to get a worthless degree so that you can go into the employer and say, "See, look at this. I have this piece of paper. I'm worth I'm now worth more than minimum wage." which you probably even aren't at that point um, because all you've done is barf at frat parties and take bong reps for four years. And it's easy. It's so fucking easy for a politician, these pussy politicians that have never run a business, never done anything, never had an actual job in their lives, never had to actually meet payroll. They just get these budgets. It's e- it's so easy for them to sit there on their fucking high horses and say, oh, well, you should pay more. You should really pay them a living wage. It drives me crazy. People act rationally, all right? And if somebody is working at Walmart for minimum wage, we can safely assume, we can deduce that nobody else was willing to pay them 
a higher wage than what Walmart was offering them. So it was the best thing that they could find. And what politicians like to do is they look around at, at the decisions that, that uh, poor people are making and, and they look at all of the, the opportunities that they have and they take away the one opportunity that they chose. And, it's abs- and they make it illegal. It's absolutely ridiculous. How is that, gonna, how is that helping anybody? Other than, other than the politician that gets to grandstand and suffer none of the consequences because they've got this cushy job in Congress. Meanwhile, they sit there demonizing the only companies that were willing to pay these workers something. What about all the other companies out there that weren't willing to pay them anything? How about demonizing them? How about that? They should be ashamed of themselves. So, good points, I think, all around. Um, what... What do you think the consequences would be? Let's say, you know, they campaign, they got it through. Minimum wage over the next three years is going up to $15 an hour. Yeah. What do you think the consequences would be of that effect? There's, that would be anti-worker. Yeah. Well, there's a number. It, one of the things is you always have the, that, the, the Frederick Bastiat, the seen versus the unseen. Okay. So you don't see what, what sort of jobs would be created. Okay. That would have paid less than fifteen dollars an hour. Okay. You don't see what companies would have come into existence um, because they can't afford to pay people fifteen dollars an hour. So you don't know how many jobs you're not getting. Okay. Because they never came into existence. So do you because think you have higher unemployment? Absolutely, you'd have higher unemployment. And you know, we didn't always have a federal minimum wage. I think the the first one was in like the '30s or something like that, and it was like twenty five cents an hour. That only applied to federal workers, if I remember correctly. The minimum wage as we know it today wasn't really instituted until the 60s, okay? Uh, which reminds me, the origins of the minimum wage uh, were, were labor unions. And labor union. You, you have to ask yourself, why did labor unions, the skilled labor, why would they be advocating for a minimum wage? Because the minimum wage is for unskilled labor, and unions are skilled labor. Well... If you go back and you read what they were saying when they were lobbying for a minimum wage, it was to price unskilled black labor out of the market. The reason they advocated for it was because they didn't want lower skilled black workers coming in and undercutting the the union laborers. Before that, if you look at the unemployment numbers, black teenage unemployment and white teenage unemployment were about the same before we had a minimum wage. Now black teenage unemployment is off the charts high. Trump's been bragging about the teenage unemployment or black unemployment being the lowest that it's been in decades. And it is. I mean, it's lower than it has been. It's still at like 25%. It was at 50% a few years ago. So 50% on teenage unemployment from um, black kids like 16 to 19. Now it's down to 25%. It was around 10% in the late 1940s, which was about the same as white teenage unemployment. And now now we have a minimum wage and black teenage unemployment is like two is like twice, twice that of white teenage unemployment. So, yes, we would have more unemployment for sure um, if you raise the minimum wage. But not only is it bad economics, as I just pointed out, it's also racist. And it hurts the the poorest, most um, unfortunate among us, who who need the jobs the most. So the the roots of the minimum wage were very racially motivated, and it was it was specifically designed to prevent unskilled labor from undercutting the skilled workforce. All right, and the other thing is it's going to attract more competition into those lower skilled jobs. Yeah. So you're gonna instead of like. If I own like a McDonald's, right, and I'm looking for a fry guy, well, if it pays $15 an hour and I, I now have my choice between somebody who like maybe has like a college degree right. and has like a, a, a much better resume who wouldn't normally go for that job if it only paid $8 an hour. Yeah. And so it's like the, the people who, who need those jobs the most, the, you know, the, the poorest among us, the least educated, the ones who really need to get like a foot in the door, aren't going to be. They're going to be outcompeted 
for those positions by by more skilled labor. Yeah. Because it's offering a higher wage. It's like I always like to think of it as, you know, it think of a ladder, right? And you're climbing this ladder all, you know, all the way to the top to try to be like a very successful person, right? Yeah. And every time the government institutes some sort of regulation, in this case a minimum wage, they're removing rungs from that ladder. So, it's harder it's harder to to either grab the ladder it's like instead of it starting on the ground you just start climbing up it it's like one of those um fire escapes that starts like eight feet off the ground yeah and now you got to get like a running jump and and you might miss it yeah fall down look i i know the theory i'm hearing the theory from you right And, and maybe this is just like not thinking about it too much in detail but you know when i hear higher minimum wage i'm thinking okay people that can barely you know, get by, right? Suddenly, by force, for sure, you know, are able to make more. That's kind of why I think there are a lot of law of unintended, there, there are a lot of unintended consequences that I'm probably not thinking about. But I, I wonder if in practice, the effects are a lot smaller and around the margins than, than, than sort of the theory you're laying out. I wonder about that. Well, why do you think we're, we're, there's so much more automation going on? Why do you, you go to the grocery store now? You have to basically check yourself out. Yeah, there's nobody bagging groceries. There's that nobody makes, pumping that, your gas that anymore. That being said, like I love going to the grocery store when people, there's plenty of people checking me out. Like I, I hate the self checkout. Yeah, and another thing is like a lot of times, especially um, in grocery stores, they when they have the the people that are bagging your groceries. Those are good jobs for people with disabilities to have. Right. You know, they always have like somebody with Down syndrome or something. Greeters. Yeah. Who's, I mean, the paycheck to them is not important, right? Right. It's about having like a sense of purpose and like they get some dignity out of it and they learn how to like do stuff. It gives them a reason to like get up in the morning. Like they have people, generally speaking, that take care of them. Right. So the paycheck isn't important. And when you, when you make those jobs $15 an hour, you can't just, be paying somebody with Down syndrome to to bag those groceries. Right. It's you can get much better, much better labor. Yeah. yeah. For for those kinds of jobs. But let me ask you this. Well, one of the interesting thing I was gonna say is, you know, the nice thing about the states having so much more control over it is, you kind of will. You can probably do some research and see how the different minimum wages will affect, and yeah. and what 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 will the effect be at different yeah. states. I mean, you're much more of like a a state's rights you want you want things handled at the state level right and i mean to that point every state is different the idea of having like a blanket minimum wage it's going to be the same in alabama as it is in like uh like seattle or san francisco or something like that is is absolutely ridiculous well you almost don't need a it's funny you almost don't need a minimum wage in a lot of like these like big urban centers just because you you don't you definitely you don't need it anywhere so good you don't need it anywhere yeah why doesn't everybody make the minimum wage if employers are so greedy that they just want to pay everybody as little as possible right you know and why like another thing another problem with it is it's just completely arbitrary it's just the price control it's a price control on the price of labor. Are price controls helpful in any other scenario? And if, if 15 is good, isn't 16 better? Why don't we make it $20 an hour? Why not $50 an hour? Yeah. If you could, like, explain to me why we shouldn't make it $50 an hour. Because, I mean, if, if 15 is good, 50 would be much better. And by the way, whatever explanation you're going to give me for 50 being too high, those same problems apply to a minimum wage of $7, of $5, of $3. It just affects less people. You know, the problems are constant across the board. The higher you raise it, the more the more people you price out of the labor force. That's it. So those same problems that existed $50 also existed 15 just to a lesser degree, but they're still there. They're still very real. So yeah, the minimum wage is, I will reiterate one of the, if not the dumbest um, political policies of all time. I am, I am vehemently against it on a, on an economics level, on a moral level. The government has no business getting involved between the negotiation of two free people. If I wanted to take a job for $2 an hour, if I if I wanted to work for free. Oh, that's the other thing. In unpaid internships. 
That's the other the other ridiculous thing that the government did. Yes, they made it illegal for you to work for less than seven twenty five, but they didn't make it illegal for you to work for free. So you could have unpaid internships. So where people maybe they'd be getting three, four, five dollars an hour. Now they get nothing because it's illegal to pay them five, but it's not illegal to pay them nothing. Nice work. Yeah, bravo. Keep keep working. Keep working for the poor guy. You idiots. <laughs> All right. <laughs> anyway, you want to wrap? Yeah, we can wrap there. Unless you have anything else to add. I'm good. We can wrap there. So, guys, if you like the show today, make sure you download and subscribe. I'm sure you know somebody that would be interested in these topics or that needs to know just how devastating the minimum wage can be. So go ahead and share the show with some of your friends. At least two people that you think would like it and one person that you think, you know, might get offended by it. I'm fine with that. I offend people all day long. So the more the merrier. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Pedal Fiction, I think is our handle. If you want to support the show, you can check out our website, PedalingFictionPodcast.com. You can make a one-time donation or set up a monthly payment for pretty much any amount that you want. Or, you know, you can just leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you think the show is worth it. That always helps with things, too. So anything you can do to help us um, get this show on the road would be much appreciated. And if you can do all that, we'll be back next week. And until then, just keep peddling that so-called fiction. Peace. Peace.